0: Welcome to the Living the Writing Life podcast. My guest today is author Erica Bauermeister. Erica is the New York Times best-selling author of four novels, including The School of Essential Ingredients and the 2020 Reese's Book Club pick, The Scent Keeper. She's also written a memoir entitled House Lessons: Renovating a Life, and is the co-author of two readers' guides to books, 500 Great Books by Women. And let's hear it for the girls. Erica's fifth novel, No Two Persons, will be published in May 2023. She lives with her husband in Port Townsend, Washington. In today's conversation, we'll be talking about how a place can affect a writer's sense of identity, as well as the choices of what actions or non-actions the writer takes within that space. Welcome to the show, Erica. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure, and I want to open our conversation by telling you how much I enjoyed reading The School of Essential Ingredients, not only because it was so beautifully written, but because the intertwined stories were just so fascinating. You know, I knew I wanted you on the podcast, but it wasn't until I read House Lessons that I figured out what focus I wanted our talk to take about the effect a place can have on a writer's sense of identity. You know, the school, the the kitchen in the school uh, served that purpose in a way for the students and certainly the 1909 house, you and your husband Ben renovated in Port Townsend that you wrote about in house lessons did it for you. As writers, we may spend much of our creative time in our heads, but the external location plays a role in how well or poorly our writing can go. So let's start with your current writing space. Where do you do most of your writing now?
1: Well, I'm actually very lucky. Um, I now have a writing, we call it the the epilogue, the isolation tank, the writing shed, you name it. It's my studio. Uh, It's down in our little orchard. And, but you know, I, we built that when I was 59, you know, so before that, when I was first starting and I had little kids and then teenagers, I mean, thank God for laptops is all I can say, because it would go wherever the quiet space was. And I would just, grab that space and shut a door if I could and, um, and write. And that's, so it's, it's a much different writing process that I have now than I've ever had before.
0: Yeah. And and I think it is, I think it's important sometimes to have a dedicated writing space, even if it's just like a little corner somewhere, because what that is telling us and telling the people around us is this is important enough that I deserve these square feet feet or inches or whatever it is we steal but you know it 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 just identifies that you know people tend to think well a woman has the entire house but we don't really right I mean we share the house with everybody else and even if we're there with only one other person still it's kind of like our house so it's I, I really have to applaud you for, for having your own writing shed and, and actually for being able to steal whatever space you could even in the early days, because I went through it, that myself and I shared, well, I worked in the basement and shared the space with spiders. So it's kind of like, yeah,
1: you know, you go where you can go. Um, um, I, I do think that it's important. Um, I, I, and I think it's not, completely coincidental that I really started working on this writing studio when I was working on a fourth draft of house lessons. Um, And I was really talking about the psychology of space and how important architecture is to molding our behavior. And, you know, that writing studio is only for writing. I don't do emails. I don't do social media, nothing. All I do is write. And when I open that door and walk inside, that's who I am. I'm a writer. And when I walk back up to the house, then I become the person who does the business end of being an author and does laundry and cooking and, you know, grandchildren and children and all of those other myriad things that are part of our lives. But to be able to do that is really important. And and one of the things that I've talked about when I go out and talk about house lessons is, yes, I am lucky. I have a door I can shut. I have a, a place that's separate. But you can create those spaces. You can paint a wall you know a different color and put a chair that faces it you know and that is your space um you claim whatever it is some people write in bathtubs you know I mean just whatever it is that allows you to turn your mind like flip that switch in your mind from everybody else that you are to the writer and and allow architecture to help you flip that switch
0: no you're right and sometimes it, like you said even just painting a wall or or setting something specific on your desktop that says this is this is me the writer and this Mm -hmm. is this belongs I mean it's it's as much a physical change as a mental change
1: yes and one leads to the other I mean I know uh, I know friends who light candles and as long as that candle is burning you're a writer or they put on headphones and there's music that they only listen to or a kind of tea that they only drink when they're writing all of those kinds of, it sounds manipulative, but, uh, but it is important. Those, those cues remind us to switch gears.
0: I wonder too, if, and, and I don't mean to be sexist or anything, but I wonder too, if it isn't kind of harder for women, especially if we're doing it in our home, because there's all those other home things that would be calling to us. It's kind of like, well, I'm going to sit down and work on my novel but there's that basket of clothes that needs folded or there's the dishes or oh gee do I have to turn the crock pot on now I yeah. mean it, you know anything that we can do to block out everything else and like you said just be the writer not the writer slash wife the writer slash mother laundress all those other things you know it's um yeah it, it can be it can be challenging and, you know, like you said, even if you can't have an entire shed to yourself, whatever you can do and, and you deserve it. Maybe that's the other thing too. I wonder if sometimes we think, well, you know, it's such a long shot getting published. Should I really mm-hmm. should I really give it that much time and, and physical space? Cause after all, and it's like, no, you, you should. Whether or not you get published, you should, you, you, I always tell people like when I'm doing a writing workshop, if you have the ability to write, then you owe it to yourself and to everyone else to do it because otherwise that gift was wasted on you.
1: Well, and I also think, you know, when I, when, when I'm talking to students, one of the things they say is that the sentence you have to get out of your vocabulary is it's okay. I'm just writing you know you pick up the phone you that someone walks in and the more we can practice not like get that just out of theirs. Yes. Yeah, get that it's okay. You know it's I'm writing and I I have such admiration for all of the young writers who are able to like put a sign on their door and you know stay out I'm writing. I could never do that quite honestly I was not brought up that way and it's taken me a long time to be able to claim space. And I realized, particularly during this pandemic, when I I was home every day, I couldn't go caretake people outside of my own home. And I had a writing studio and I actually went every day and wrote. And I wrote a novel in 18 months. Normally it can take me up to six years. And that really shows you what a difference dedicated space and time can make. Um, That said, all of those things that I spent my time on before they are all important and informed my writing now. So I don't begrudge them for a second, um, but it is a difference.
0: Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think too, especially as we get older and think we're running out of time, we have to look at the past experiences that we had, not as, oh, that slowed me down from being a best-selling author when I'm 22. To that is just so much more material I have to write about, <laughs> yes, yes. whether or not our family's particularly thrilled with that idea. But yeah, I mean, it just, it, it's the experiences we had, the emotions that we had, you know, everything, the people that we interacted with then, that at the time we were interacting with them, like if you had somebody in the hospital and you ended up interacting with a family member of the patient in the bed next to you, it's kind of like, you know, at the time, you're not looking at them as, as fodder for your future fiction. You're looking them at them as one more person in a really sucky situation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, somewhere down the line, some little piece of that might become very useful when you are writing about a character who's maybe going through a similar situation. Yes. So exactly. nothing's ever wasted. It just, sometimes it just takes longer to get to the point where we can use it, right? Mm-hmm exactly <laughs> well you know in in house lessons I, I i like i said i love the book you you talk about your professional background you were a copywriter later you became a real estate agent But during the house renovation um you were the point person you know you were there on the job site but you also did a lot of physical labor you were tearing down walls you know cleaning up i really admire you for all that stuff you had to clean out of the house before you guys could even get started but one of the things, and, and maybe because I always get looking for metaphors, one of the things that really intrigued me was you're talking about clearing out the those vines of ivy that were choking the trees. And that made me think about all the negative perceptions and fears that often choke our creativity when when we're trying to just work, you know, and they're they're choking us, and it's it's like the endless Ivy of questions. Am I good enough? Will anybody want to read what I wrote? Am I just fooling myself? And you know, you talked about pulling out the vines but if you didn't stay on top of them those babies are gonna come back. And that's sometimes I think the same way a lot of the, the fears and perceptions of who we are as writers comes back. So do you have those particular fears that you have to still kind of deal with Even after publishing so many books, do you still have those Ivy fears of, of what if I can't, what if nobody likes it, whatever, do you still have to pull those out by the roots periodically?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I, I, I used to there, we, we started this group called the Seattle seven writers, which ended up being 92 Seattle area writers. And I don't know if there's a single one of those people who doesn't go through that. And if they say they don't, they're lying. I mean, it's just, how can you not, you know, you're weaving worlds out of nothing. And you never know if you have the skill to do this next thing. Um, But I also think that that fear is, can be propulsive and motivating. I mean, it, it is what convinces me to dig deeper or try something harder. I mean, maybe that sounds antithetical, but the reality is I I want to get better. I always want to get better. And so that means, okay, then I'm going to take on a different challenge, something new. Um, and so for me, the fear, while I, I can't say that I like it, it's been helpful.
0: Oh, well, that I mean, that's good to know because I think I know years before I ever had anything published, I mean, anything at all published, I used to think that, hey, if you were a published writer or a published author, it must be so easy doing the next one because you already did it once. And it never occurred to me that it's so hard to do the first one, but that doesn't mean the next one's going to be any easier unless you're writing an exact carbon copy and who wants to do that? So it's something...
1: The reality is the second one is often harder because the first one, you are alone with the book. There's nobody else in your head. And the second one, you now realize there are people out in the world and not all of them will like it. You know, my first review and really my first personal review that I ever got for School of Essential Ingredients um, came out the weekend that I, so I established myself back out here in the house in order to write. And I was the only person in the house. We still had a house in Seattle and I was using the Port Townsend house as an office for about nine months. We worked it out so that that could happen. And that same weekend that we moved the minimal furniture out, you know, the futon mattress and the the folding chair and the folding table out so that I would have a place to write. um, That same weekend, we dropped our son off at college. The stock market crashed and I got my first review for School of Essential Ingredients, which was horrifying. It was one of the worst reviews I've ever read in my life. It was mean, it was snarky. Um it it talked about a pitiless blitzkrieg of metaphors. I mean it and he used four metaphors in order to describe my metaphors, which I thought was hilarious, but I mean it was just devastating. And and it really it was this feeling that oh my gosh we're not in Kansas anymore. I mean people it's not my book anymore. It's somebody else's book. And Um, luckily the next week publishers, you know, weekly came out and they loved it. And from then on, it was all good. But for that one week, it was just this one person should not have been the person to review it. It obviously wasn't what he liked to read and he took it out on me. And that may have something to do with why my next book is about how we all read books differently. But anyway, um, you know, I, I think that we, we have to acknowledge that not everybody is going to like our work, that it's not going to speak to everyone, just as we do not want to have to like every book we read. We have to then be open to the fact that not everyone will like ours. And it's that can be paralyzing. And it's why I tell people as a general rule not to read reviews, certainly not to read good reads and Amazon reviews of your own work, because if they're bad, it'll paralyze you. And if they're good, it will paralyze you. So as much as possible, live inside the book that you're writing and allow yourself that that freedom to be with your characters and love who they are.
0: I I think that's good advice, because especially if it's a bad review, I mean, we we take it really personally and we look at it as I am such a failure. And unfortunately, you could have one bad review, 10 great reviews. I don't know about you, but if I got any negative comments about any of my books, that's the only one I remember.
1: And, <laughs> you know, I do you know? say I, I, I try to get something from any negative review I have. And the reality is I worked really hard on my metaphors after that review. And I now am much more subtle and complex and and my writing is very different. Um, I would go back to School of Essential Ingredients and cut some of the metaphors because there are too many. But, you know, that's part of how we're growing, right? And I think what all you can do as a writer is when you're looking at your manuscript, say, is this the best I can do at this point in my life and my craft? Because you will, please God, always get better, right? And so at some point, you just have to say, this is as good as I can do for this book. And you have to put on your bullshit meter and say, okay, am I just, am I cheating and just tired of it? Or is this truly the best of my ability at this point? And if it is, then great. Whatever anybody else says about it doesn't matter. That's what you did and, and stick by it.
0: I, I think that's, that's excellent. Um, You know, I, I really had to laugh, especially uh, something that your mother said, because my, my mom's gone now, but I can hear her voice sometimes Um, in in the book, in, in House Lessons, you mentioned that there's two types of people, separators and smashers. And this time you wanted to be in the latter category, in the smasher category, even though it was completely out of character for you. And when you told your mother about the plans to renovate the house, she was surprised because as she put it, you're the one who likes things neat and clean. But, you know, as we all know, remodeling a house or life for that matter is anything but a neat and clean process. When you look back to all that time you spent renovating the house and and the, the tasks that you took on that were different than what you had done before, do you think that this was the beginning of a new Erica, one who would be willing to take the chance to also pursue your goal of having a book published?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, a, a couple things there. Um, first off, I always was trying to get published. It just wasn't working. So, you know, there was probably a good 15 plus years in there where I was actively trying to get published and it just, I was writing memoirs and it, and it wasn't working. And part of the problem was that I was too young and too inexperienced. I didn't have the perspective necessary. A memoir needs to have a bird's eye view. And I was very much in the middle of it at the time. Um, but I do think that renovating the house had a, a major effect on who I was. Um, and I think that there are these scripts that were handed uh, as children. And I think it was very helpful. I was the fourth of four daughters. It was very helpful that I was clean and neat and tidy and good, you know? Um, but that, that desire to please, is not necessarily the best thing for one's writing because then you're writing in order to feed your own ego in some ways you're, you're writing to please other people and your your needs are at the center of the writing and i think when you can gain the confidence and the sense of self that calm sense of self and oddly i got that calm sense of smell self through smashing plaster and lath. that's what we're talking about with the smashers and the separators um, but I, I got this sense of of who I was. And once I had that, I felt less need to intrude myself into the process. And I think that's part of why my brain switched to fiction, where it became about the characters and not about me. And oddly enough, once I started writing fiction and it was published, I started getting letters from people saying, oh, your writing is so personal. <laughs> And I thought, oh, okay, so I'm personal when I lie. All right, that's great, you know. But I do think that that's important. I mean, as writers, we need to get ourselves out of the process, even in memoir. We need to remember that we're writing memoirs so that other people can learn something about themselves. They're not necessarily just there to learn about you. Um, There's a saying that at the end of a memoir, a reader should always know more about themselves than the author, and I think that is critical to writing a really good memoir. Um, the first versions of house lessons, it was all about us, right? I was still kind of in that that place. And I just thought everyone would find everything we did so exciting. And the reality is a lot of people renovate houses. And what I needed to add to the equation was that more universal layer of talking about the psychology of space and how does this affect a marriage? And there's those sort of larger issues that allow an outside reader who may or may not ever renovate a house find something of value in the book.
0: Oh yeah, because even, you know, whether you're renovating a house or you're simply trying to pick out wallpaper together, Mm
1: -hmm. it's
0: still, you know, things start coming into play that who would have thought. But you know, the other thing I really loved about the book, because I've always been like this, when I read something is you gave all this interesting back information i mean you quoted from these architectural i mean i found myself online going can i get that book i that books just sounds so interesting i never thought of that perspective i mean it was it was so seamlessly done so it's not like oh and now she's going to shovel me you know five pages of history of architecture it was everything just tied together so well, but you know, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, um, it, it's the way shared experiences and especially, you know, how you, how you talk about how you were at the renovated house, he was kind of doing more of the things with the, the kids that you used to do. And, you know, it's, it's a shift, It's a shift. And, and, and sometimes it is just very hard to let somebody else do what we considered our work, because what if they do it better than us? I don't know about you, but that's like where my brain would go right away. Oh, what if the kids like his cooking better than mine? You know, it's like this feeling of uh, who's, who's in charge or who's in what space, but, you know, as writers, especially as fiction writers, we do have to be able to inhabit other spaces. We can't just have every character be us anyhow.
1: And and to acknowledge difference, I think, you know, I mean, it isn't that my husband was going to cook it better or worse than I was, he was definitely going to cook it differently, because that's who he is. And I think once we acknowledge that difference is good, then particularly as fiction writers, that is helpful, because that opens us up to characters. And as memoir writers, it's helpful, because then we aren't grinding axes and not trying to convince other people to see it exactly the way we saw it it'll it gives the reader space to enter our stories and find whatever they need to find within them
0: yeah no you're absolutely right that that is so true and and i think a lot of times too people who are new to memoir writing they tend to kind of like go back everything that was done to them, good, bad, or indifferent. And it's like, it's almost, yes, it's memoir, personal, yes. But like you said, it should be a larger, there should be something larger than that. So that the reader starts thinking, I remember when I felt kind of like that, or yeah, I can kind of relate to what she went through because there was something similar. I never thought of it that way. Mm hmm. And it it should be it should be a a broadening of our perception of things. Speaking of perception, um, you know, not all of us, thank God, want to undertake something (laughs) as major as a house renovation as as a way of shifting our perception of ourselves. What can we do as writers? Because I think sometimes we tend to identify ourselves as I'm only a memoir writer. I'm only a poet. I'm only a novelist, whatever. <clears throat> and, and, or I can only write this much, but I'm not going to try for anything bigger because I don't think I can do it. What can we do as writers to smash those limits and renovate our perception of what we can be as writers?
1: That's a good question. Um, you know, I I always want to learn something new. I mean, that's one of the the excuses for writing. Honestly, is then I get to research new things. Um, my new book has ten different characters, and they're all vastly different. So I got to research free diving and intimacy coordinating for movies and what it's what it's like to be a homeless teenager. And and to me, that's that keeps my brain alive. That keeps me happy. So I am always interested in trying the next topic or, or trying a new structure for a book or something like that. So for me, I don't, it isn't that part is not that that is never an issue. And I would say, if it is an issue, then you need to find something that you really want to learn about. Whenever I get stuck, I go back to research. It's like, okay, because the well has gone dry. I need new material. And you know, diving, literally diving deep into free diving, um, inhabiting that world, then that really helped me write about it. Uh, So that aspect, but I do realize that sometimes there is fear that's holding us back. And I guess with that, you know, the thing that I hold up to myself is every time I get scared about sending something out or trying something new, um, I just think, okay, okay, would you rather you know how are you going to feel if you say no now how will you feel at the end of your life that you didn't try it you know isn't it going to be worse later if you didn't than it is now if they say no and if they say no you find someone else that's the thing I mean every book that I have ever written has been told no to you know sometimes hundreds of times House Lessons was literally written four different times, four different ways. Scent Keeper was written five different times, back to scratch every single time. You know, Scent Keeper was a new book every time, but I loved that main character and I wouldn't let go. So, um, you know, it's, I think the way I get past the thin skin of it, because it hurts every time someone says no, um, the way I get past it is to find a reason that it's not about me. So, to find in ca- the case of Scent Keeper, it was that character of Emmeline. I was not going to let her down. I was not going to let go. Um, in the case of House Lessons, it was that I felt like I needed to keep learning something and that I hadn't written the version that would teach me what I needed to learn. And so, each time there had to be something besides my ego that was going to be the reason to keep going. Um, I'm a great believer in underdogs. I'm very, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, have a very maternal side. So if I can find the thing that I need to protect or back up other than me, I'm going to do a whole lot better.
0: Excellent. Um, You know, that that made me think too, um, when you were talking about, when you were working on the School of Essential Ingredients, that you said you wrote that book um, only for yourself, and yet that was the one that sold. And You know, I, you read all these articles that say, okay, if you're going to write a book, you should find out what's selling in the market. And you write to, write to fit that genre, write to fit that category, whatever it is. And so then, so then you do it. It's like, okay, um, fantasy is selling right now. I'm going to write a fantasy novel because everybody wants it. So you write the fantasy novel, even though it's not really your thing. And then it gets rejected. So then you're like, well, That didn't work terribly well. And and I wonder sometimes if, I mean, yes, we should have goals, obviously. But I can't help thinking that it's a mistake, especially for a new writer, to have the goal of, I'm going to get published. I'm going to get this piece published. And maybe the goal should just be, I'm going to write this book because I'm interested in it. I want to see what's going to happen when I finish it in terms of how the characters end up. And I'm going to do the best I can. And then after that, if it sells, great. That's icing on the cake. But I mean, sometimes do you think we put too much emphasis on the getting published instead of writing the best thing? Especially now when it's so easy to do self-publishing.
1: Yes, I absolutely think we do that. Um, I mean, the reality is, you can't time that kind of thing. You know, a book can take you years to write. It might take you a year to sell, if it sells. And then it will take a year or two to be produced. So that by the time you get it out there, whatever was, you know, five years ago, vampires were hip or whatever. Well, they're not going to be now, you know? So, and and that, that has been, that has worked both in my favor and against. I mean, the first memoir I wrote was about being a young mother. And this was back in the late 80s, early 90s. Publishers said, oh, moms don't read. Well, we've proven that absolutely incorrect, but at the time, okay, my timing was bad. Then I wrote about living in Italy. Well, Under the Tuscan Sun had just come out, so everyone was writing about Italy, and no, you couldn't sell that book to save your soul. So then I wrote about houses, and it just wasn't that good of a book the first time, so that didn't work either, Um, and then I switched to School of Essential Ingredients, and the reason I did that, switched to writing that book, was after renovating the house out in Port Townsend. I knew that I loved doing that work, but physically I just didn't wanna sledgehammer another house. And And so I thought, okay, well, what if I do houses for money and write for free? What if I just flip the equation, take my ego out of it yet again, uh, ignore the fact that I have a PhD in literature and write for free and do houses for money? And I loved doing real estate. It, it's There's a very practical, organized part of my mind that loved doing that. It taught me to market, which I had never been good at and has been incredibly helpful now that I'm an actual author. And And then I wrote this book, which was fiction, which I never thought I would write. And I did it because I loved it, because I loved those characters. I just, I had this idea. It fell in my head and I followed it. It took me six years. And by that point, when I started it, food wasn't a big deal. By the time I was going to market six years later, by golly, it was. And so then my timing worked in my favor. And I lucked into finding, you know, there was someone in the agency I sent it to. It was not the agent I sent it to. It was their assistant. That person fell in love with it and advocated. And that's why it got published. So, you know, you can't, that's the other part of it is, You can write this whole beautiful book and it's going to, unfortunately, so much will depend on who reads it at what point in their day. You know, you can be smart and not send a fantasy novel to a historical fiction agent. That's your first step. But you can't control what that agent ate for lunch or whether or not they had a fight with their husband or anything. And so I, you know, I'm sorry, because that makes it sound like it's a total crapshoot, but in some ways it is. And that's where the little miracles happen.
0: You know, one of the things that that you did bring up in the book, too, was when after your kids left, your husband and you were empty nesters, you moved back to the, the house in Port Townsend and ultimately you created or had built a writing shed, you know, and that was going to be your writing place, you know, and it's like, you know, the rest of us are thinking, wow, I wish we had a writing shed. Sometimes I wish we had a door with a lock, you know, <laughs> whatever, but As wonderful as that sounds, did it ever also give you a sense of, okay, now I have this lovely writing shed that all I'm going to do in here is write and everything is perfect. I have it exactly the way I want. Did you ever worry that that was almost like such a, the expectation was almost so overwhelming that some days it was hard to live up to the writing shed?
1: Mm. Um, you know, it's interesting because, because of the kind of writing I do, which is about what many would consider unimportant things, right? I look at the really small things and I make them bigger. Um, my husband likes to say, I write books where nothing happens and everything happens. And because of that, I am not following a plot line per se, some big action pack. This happens next plot line. Almost all the work that I do is either interconnected essays or interconnected stories. And within those stories, it's more like pen and ink sketches. They're very light and they almost always are completely dependent on a revelation or two or three that a person has within a set period of time. I don't always know what that revelation is. I never have. The joy of it is getting a character in my mind and following them where they lead. But the downside of that is you don't always know where it's going to go. And there are times where I have been sitting any number of places and I am stuck because I don't know what's supposed to happen. And I learned a long time ago that that, that old adage about keep your butt in the chair until you write 2000 words. Yeah, that's about as helpful as saying you should write drunk for me because no, for me, that is not what should happen. And even though I have that lovely writing studio, if I force myself to stay there and write, um, I will write myself into a corner and it will take me weeks to get out of it. And so I have learned that you, you walk out, you take a walk, you do the laundry, you do you know all those things that we think get in the way also are these repetitive physical activities that allow the back of our minds to process what it is that we are writing about. And so I, I don't. It doesn't feel like pressure. It feels like the most marvelous place in the world I could go, um, and it's the place where I am probably most me. And um, I try not to take doubt down there, but but that's part of writing. Um, so, so I just let myself be whoever I am there and leave when I need to. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and I and I think those are those are good and valid points because um, like you said, it is part of the process. and if and if as writers we think we're the only ones who hit a wall or we're the only ones who doubt our abilities, then that be that really hamstrings us. But if we start thinking in terms of, yeah, Everybody, even I mean, I mean, re- I remember I had a, a correspondence one time with a writer. I mean, he wrote the most marvelous books, and that's, I mean, this was so long ago it was before we had email. And so I sent a letter in care of his publisher, and I said this book just had such an impact on me, and told him even specifically why, you know, because it related to something that happened in my life. I said this is just beautiful. And so, you know, we had this loose correspondence going on. And at one time, you know, I was whining, admittedly, about how I couldn't get a short story published. At that time, I hadn't had anything published. And I said, you know what, I'm never going to succeed. And, you know, so tell me what you're working on now. You know, how how soon can I have a new book from you coming out? And and he goes, and he, he wrote me back, he goes, Don't hold your breath because nobody's, nobody, not my, even my agent thinks I'm going to be able to do it. And I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. And that just knocked me for a loop because I'm thinking, oh my God, you write so wonderfully. I've read all your other books. Mm -hmm. What do you mean you're having a problem? You know, it's like, you're just perfect. And that was a real revelation to me that no matter how good a writer can be and no matter how wonderful all the previous books are, you approach each new project with that little bit of "I'm gonna gonna try and and write the best I can, but I don't know if it's going to turn out," mm-hmm. you know. And and when I realized that, I thought, okay, so it's not a reflection of your inability. That's just part of being a writer. And that that was just that was an amazing, you know, eye opening mind-opening thing for me is like, okay, just because you you doubt your ability doesn't mean you're a failure.
1: No, and and you know, all three of those early memoirs that I wrote that weren't published, um, those were my teachers. You know, they taught me the craft of writing. I learned so much from them. I am so glad they are not published. I was not ready to be published. And and the adage is that it takes you three books before you have enough skill under your belt to get one published. So maybe that's a, that equivalent of Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours. I have no idea. But, you know, I I, I don't understand why people think that just because we use words in daily life. We should all be able to just crank out a book, the equivalent of Mozart, you know. Um, it, it, you re- It requires training and practice and a lot of time. Now, that said, the f- side of that is that I talk to a lot of students who say, oh, I'm not really a writer, you know, because I haven't been published. I'm a writer, but I'm not really a writer. And And I just, you know, I'm sorry, I'm going to call bullshit on that one because here's the thing. You are a writer because of how you see the world. You are a writer because when you go to the airport, you are looking at the stories between everybody at that baggage claim. You know, you, you're <laughs> my husband's off looking for the luggage. I'm going, whoa! Look at the interaction between that mother and child, or that husband and wife. And I'm thinking about, oh, why? And I'm not thinking necessarily about turning into a book. I'm just curious, right? And and I see how the, the light is hitting the tree out in front of my window right now. And how would I describe that? You know, and And I am a writer because of how I see the world, not because of whether or not anybody reads my words or pays money for them. And, you know, I always compare it to being a mother and no one has ever paid me a dime for being a mother, but I am a mother in my bones. And it's very similar. Um, It is, it is who we are. And to say that we are not that person because someone is not giving us money for it uh, is a mistake. I think it, it belittles us and it belittles the work. And I think we need to stop doing that along with the, it's just writing. It, it, you have to get rid of the, I'm not really a writer. Those two lines have to come out of our vocabularies.
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that, that is so true because it's not helping you any, if no? you have that perception, then that's going to hold you back from, from trying to, trying to get someone to accept your work or even hold you back from actually writing it because you keep thinking, why am I doing this? I'm not really a writer. I shouldn't be spending any time on it, yada, yada, yada. And it just goes downhill from there.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, here's the thing. I mean, all that kind of avoidance, all of those kind of excuses that we're setting up for ourselves. Well, of course, I mean, we're basically taking our souls and putting them out there for other people to comment on. And that is a terrifying thing. Um, and, you know, it's why when students say, should I be a writer? I always say, well, can you not? Because if you can not, then go do something else. Um, but if you can't not, then you're going to keep going because you won't have any choice. I mean, I I I couldn't stop writing if you, you know, I, there's no way I will always, even if it's just in, in my brain, even if it's only at two o'clock in the morning when it's just you know, me in the dark and I got nothing else to think about. So I make up a character. I will always be writing.
0: Yeah, no, I, I understand that. It's it's like, you know, sometimes then somebody's interviewing me and well, when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? And I'm like, I I never decided to be a writer. I mean, when I was growing up, I'm, I'm all you. When I was growing up, you know, we didn't have all those forms of entertainment, right? You had your Saturday morning cartoons, and the rest of the time you were told go outside and play, which meant go outside and make something up. You had a sandbox, you had your bike, you had the few essentials of childhood, but for the most part, you were out there making things up. And and you know, you made things up, and then it was like, Oh, that's interesting. Let me write that down. I mean, it was just the the times in my life, and I'm sure you went through them too, where something so big was going on that you just couldn't write. Okay. You, you just, whatever was going on. Those were horrible times because I was always afraid that after I went through whatever crisis was happening and would try to make stuff up again, that it would be gone. And, And the one thing I learned was even if I only take, half hour a day just to put a snippet of something down just kind of to keep the pot warm mm-hmm. because thinking that I would never write again even even at that point I had not even been published but even thinking I'm never going to be able to write again the last thing I wrote is literally the last thing I'll ever write that was so devastating because I didn't know who I would be if I wasn't a writer yes you know, I mean, yes, we're mothers. Okay, great, but there comes a point where we retire, sort of, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, we're only temp, well, only part time. But I mean, you're either always a writer or you're not, mm-hmm. and and you know, I'm always a writer. I can't not be a writer.
1: Well, also for me, you know, people will say, oh, is it really hard to be a writer? You know, I remember was it Annie Dillard who was talking about how writing was like, you know, peeling off a piece of your skin. And I just thought, okay, no, not for me. You know, I mean, for me, I, nothing is more joyful in my life than when I am writing and it is going well and I am in the zone and I can't even remember what I'm writing because the words are just coming out of my fingers onto the keys. And that is, the most blissful experience I can imagine. Why would I ever want to stop trying to do that? (laughs) You know, so what, it doesn't always work. You know, we don't, you know, if you're a runner, not every day is a good run. I mean, you just, but, but you don't get better by stopping.
0: Yeah, no, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, one thing that, that really caught my attention is, you know, you were talking about that, um, in your bio, it said that when you were young, you thought if you didn't publish the great American novel by the time you were 30, you'd never publish at all. And yet you wrote for decades and your first book wasn't published until 2009 and you were 50. And that's the same story I had, which is my first book came out when I was 50. And, and you know, you, you always read these articles, you know. 20 under 20, the top 20 writers who are under 20 years old or whatever, you know, this one won this award and she's 22 for her debut novel. God love them. Okay, maybe I'm a little bit guilty or, or jealous or whatever. But it's like, there's so much attention given to what the young writers do. And then it's like, sometimes it can be very hard. I'm always looking for role models. Sometimes it can be very hard to find, People who didn't write their first book until they were 45, 50, 60, whatever it is, you know, and people kind of say, oh, well, you know, they're they're old. We'll we'll just give them some accolades because they're old and they did it. Is there too much attention paid to the age of writers when they do their first published book?
1: Well, I think, you know, I think there's room for for all ends of the spectrum, quite honestly, you know, I, I was not ready to be published at 22. I wasn't wise enough, old enough. I think there are some 22 year olds that are extraordinarily wise and have insight or are very funny or have a zeitgeist or something. And I say, yes, great, go for it. You know Um, I do think that there is, Wisdom and shading and shadowing and complications that come with being older, um, you know. I it's pretty darn hard to write about motherhood if you haven't been through it um, at at the kind of level that I think it belongs and and deserves. And I I am glad that I did those things first and that I had that experience to bring to my writing. Um, I I think it's I think there is a little less push on those you know the the young authors. I think we we're realizing the the sort of the wisdom and the gravitas that you can get with the older writers. Um, and you know, I certainly read the whole range myself and I like that diversity. So I think I think that the the problem is when we when we go into an either or, situation. And and I don't think it has to be. I think it can be all.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I had interviewed an, an author, um, Juliette Mar- Marlaire. I always have trouble saying her last name. She went to a writer's conference in Ireland and it was more of a workshop actually than a conference. She said there was every age group there. There mm-hmm. were the 18 to 20 year olds. Juliet's in her 70s. All the age, and she said it was so fascinating because she thought she wouldn't really have a whole lot in common with the younger writers, and yet, you know, through the whole week long and the interaction they had, it almost became uh, more for her to spend time with them than to spend with people writers that were her age. It was it was like almost a better experience.
1: Interesting. So,
0: you know, you know, and and I, I think, you know, that, that would be, that would be totally cool because for instance, I couldn't write YA books. I'm, I'm too old to know what are, what are 18, whatever YA is, what is 18 year olds doing? What are 20 year olds? I don't have a frame of reference. And so whatever I write would not be true because Mm -hmm. I can only remember what it was like when I was 18 and 19 right. and it's a whole different world now. But I, I think too, people should never think, you know, when you talk about the things we should never say again, uh, we should never say things like I'm too old to try this.
1: Sure. I mean, all you got to do is remember sweetness at the bottom of the pie, right? Wasn't he 80? <laughs> you know, I mean, I just, I, that's, I hold on to that one. I just, I, I, I remember that coming out and just thinking, okay, I got, I I'm only 45. I got plenty of time, you know? Yeah, that that's it. Exactly.
0: Um, so, you know, it's, it's always, if, if there is something there that we want to explore the age should have nothing to do with it nor should it have anything to do with it where we live well i don't live in manhattan so i don't have access to agents or you know i'm i'm not the i'm not whatever it is people are looking for now i'm not the right color gender ethnicity ethnicity so i'm not going to find just write the story quit looking quit looking for reasons why it won't work and just write the story that is coming out of you not trying to write to the market
1: well and again you know remember your 10,000 hours right so it isn't you know we can't use that some people don't publish till they're 50 as an excuse to not start writing until you're 50 um it, it, you know we need those years and years of practice and honing and learning our craft and so i would say If you have any aspirations toward being a writer, you should start immediately and you should read everything you can get your hands on in every genre possible. You should listen to audiobooks a lot because audiobooks are where you hear the musicality of a sentence and that really can teach you a lot about structure and and writing. Um, And then you should just practice writing all different kinds of things. And think of it as an exercise program that you're going to do, you know, like weightlifting or running or swimming or anything where you're going to be learning particular skills. And, you know, maybe one year you say, okay, this, this year I'm going to work on my sentences or this year I'm going to work on plotting or I'm going to take classes in these things. And, you know, have a writing group, have a writing partner, swap your work, get feedback, get get in that habit of both being edited and editing, so that then you can use that for your own work. You know, I'm now to the point where I've been in several writing groups, and when I write, I hear their voices, you know, and I know what they would say before they even read the material. And so I'm that much further along by the time they get it. And, you know, I treat my writing as a profession, and there are skills that I need to learn and hone and work on. And um, it. I think... Mm-hmm. It's easier to think of it as some magical thing that one we, day we sit down, it just pours out of us. And then we find an agent and it, it, no, it's work. It's a job, you know, and it's a great job. It doesn't necessarily pay well or almost ever, but um, but there are so many things that we learn about the world and ourselves and our craft when we're doing it that, you know, that in itself is payment.
0: And and I I like what you just said about, you know, focus on either pick something that you're gonna focus on, plot whatever, take classes now. I I, I think that is so true because yes, we should always be improving as writers, but you know, we can't improve in a vacuum. We need we need to read, we need to take the classes, we need to have the the beta readers and the, the friends writing friends who give us good, solid critiques so that we can we can improve and then do the same for them. Because I mean, ev- like you said, it's a profession and every other profession, people go and get their continuing education credits.
1: Yes. We just have to create our own CEU schedule, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly.
0: Well, I always like to end the interview with the same question. So here's my my final question for you. How do you define success as a writer for yourself? What does success look like to you?
1: Mm. Well, I would say in a couple different ways. Um, There is the purely logistical one. So success is I sell enough books that I can sell the next book. So that means I get to keep writing as my daytime job. I've had plenty of other daytime jobs. And I am not against daytime jobs. They have all taught me a tremendous amount. I learned a lot through real estate. I, used, I, went, I worked in every part of the restaurant industry possible. And that came in very handy for writing School of Essential Ingredients. But I do like the, the flexibility of having writing be my full-time job. So for me, success is I've sold enough copies that they will buy the next book. Um, but beyond that, and I would say way more importantly than that, is the time when something I write strikes a chord with someone else. So I got a, a letter from a woman. Uh, this was after School of Essential Ingredients had come out and there's a chapter there about a young mother and kind of what happens to her during childbirth and after as she's kind of broken into pieces and then she's trying to put the pieces back, but she's not the same person and she doesn't know how how that's gonna work. And this woman wrote me and she said, "I'm," and she said, I'm 67 years old. She said, I read your book and I read that chapter to my husband and for the first time he understood. And I just thought, and I'm done. <laughs> you know, If that's all I ever do in my life is that one moment between that husband and wife. And, and there have been so many of those and, and those are the letters and, you know, Thank you for writing to me. I thank every reader that ever, ever writes to me. If a book ever speaks to you that way, tell the author. Because, my God, you'll make our day. You know, um, it's just knowing that you have, in some way, made that connection, that magical connection between what's in my head goes into words, goes into your head and becomes something else. That's miraculous. and And to know that it worked means a lot.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that is... That is wonderful because we are, we are trying to, like you say, make the connection or, or even have our characters make the connection. Mm-hmm. And it's so many times it's the validation. A writer or, or a reader could read something even if it's fiction and because it is so well done and just what they needed to read at that point it validates how they're feeling and it tells them I'm not alone, even if it only means this imaginary character went through it because that had to have its roots somewhere.
1: Yes. So it
0: is. Yeah. I mean, that's, you're right. You're right. It's, it's the, it's making the connection. It's, it's, you know, enlarging someone's viewpoint. That is Mm -hmm. all we can hope for as, as writers.
1: Yeah. And someone you may never meet in person. Absolutely. You may only have that connection through those words on the page. That's astonishing. It
0: really is. It really is. Well, I have really enjoyed having you on the show, Erica, and I am so looking forward to reading your next book. Thank you. Thank you. All right. And thanks again uh, for being on the show. And thanks to everyone who joined us here at Living the Writing Life.